You're listening to a podcast of Spurious Morality. Welcome to a podcast of spurious morality. Um, This is quite an odd one for us. It's not perhaps so odd for you as a listener, but this is the very first episode we are recording of our second series. It won't be the first online. You'll have been listening to us witter on for a couple of weeks already. But from our point of view, this is it, the beginning of series two. Uh, and I forgot to bring a party pop. I was going to have a party popper. I was going to be here. Just like set the party popper off next to the microphone and then probably edit it out because it sounds awful. We'll just have to do with me going hooray. Hooray. Anyway, we are here to discuss season eight of classic Doctor Who. Um, it's it's an interesting one. The third Doctor is well established now. We are well into the Dixon Letts era and we are about to uh, meet new companion Joe Grant. So to discuss this season with me, I have Jimmy. Hi, good to be back. And I have Greg. Hello. It's it's good to be rejoined by you both. It feels like a long time since we last did one of these, but I think it's actually been more or less our normal gap, and we're recording this in between seasons, obviously. Um but yeah, it's it's kind of mad that we've we've done seven seasons already, and some of those were pretty hefty seasons. Um, so yeah, it's good to move on with season eight. So again, as we say every week, there's a bit of a spoiler warning, uh, but it is for season eight of Classic Doctor Who, which is now well over fifty years old. So I, I don't know. Do we even need to do that warning? I don't know. Anyway, uh, we'll dive straight in then. Um, so, first of all, I'm going to ask you guys what your favourite story from this season is. Jimmy, you go first. Oh, it's a tough choice for me. I um, This is a really brilliant season. There's only one story that I really don't like, and so choosing between the other four is uh, pretty tough. I mean, I could go any way, any given day. I think, oh, I'll probably... Oh, Joe. Um, Let's say Terror of the Autons. It's a brilliant start to the season. Great introduction for Joel and the Master. It's probably objectively the best. So, yeah. And it's also something that at that point in Doctor Who was quite rare. It's a sequel. It's a sequel to Spearhead from Space from season seven, obviously. And we we really didn't get sequels uh, in that era. So it's it's an interesting sort of beast. Yeah, it's a good one. What about you, Greg? I'm going to go with uh, The Mind of Evil. We'll talk more about it later, but I think it's a very interesting way to combine Season 7 and Season 8 into one story. And I love the action-themed Pertwee's, and yeah, it's my favourite. Yeah, it's definitely a sort of 
season seven eight hybrid, and it, I, I love it. I think it's a great story. Um, but yeah, it's got the sort of dark grittiness of season seven with all of the master and the unity stuff and the action that's a bit more season eight. So yeah, it's a nice mix. Um, it's a difficult one to choose because it could be either of the two that you've mentioned already, or it could be the demons, which is a very excellent story. I think I'm also going to go mind of evil, but yeah, it's, it's a tough choice. It's a very, very strong season. This. So first up, it is terror of the autons. Uh, we, we get introduced to the master for the first time, the autons return. We get introduced to Joe Grant and it's, it's a bit of a soft reboot, really. It's kind of re-establishing what the third Doctor era is going to be uh, now that sort of the new production team have properly settled in and decided where they're going with it. So you said it was your favourite, Jimmy. You go first. Tell us what you think of Terror of the Autons. I think it does a brilliant job of following up from Spearhead from Space, giving it, as you say, a excellent sequel and so soon. Um, but I... I do find lots of little faults with it, but none of them are enough to detract from its brilliance. I mean, my first real problem is I don't like that they switched back to the sort of normal military uniforms. I love that season seven beige sort of unit having its own sort of feel, and I think it was a bit of a shame to lose that. But, um, yeah, most things about this story were brilliant. I love Jo. She makes such an excellent impression right from the start, and especially the way the Doctor's... Like, no, you've got to get rid of her. She's useless, blah, blah, blah. And as soon as the brig's like, you've got to fire yourself, he's like, I can't. <laughs> it's, yeah, such a great dynamic and they build it up so well. And, of course, the master is incredible from the very start. And, yeah, such a such a great villain and such a great introduction for him. But, yeah, there's lots of little faults that get in the way of it. Like, I think um, the chair killing the person, that was... Such a cool concept, but, I mean, in the execution was really not good the way he sort of looks like he's visibly pulling it over on himself. And the troll doll, for instance, I'm like, I don't see why if they were going to use the CSO and that and have an actual actor moving about as it, why didn't they make it look like a normal doll that it's actually plausible that they'd want to be selling? So that was a bit weird. And the cop autons, the masks over the default auton head instead of, like, just a sheen on the person like Scobie and Spearhead. It was really weird, and especially the Autons suddenly being able to talk as well. I mean, not just the facsimiles, but the individual faceless ones. It's They changed so much. Like, it didn't feel like a lot of changes when I was actually watching it, but looking back through my notes and all the dot points I've made, it's clear that it's actually, you know, quite a different story, despite being a sequel made almost the same time. It's... Yeah, there's a lot of changes, and that despite all those faults I've listed, I, I mean, it's still thoroughly enjoyable from start to finish. It's an excellent story, and I mean, having to introduce the sort of revised unit, the first master, new companion, new unit soldier in Yates, it's, yeah, the fact that it manages to juggle all those different balls and still come across quite well is uh, quite impressive, I think. It's. I think it's perhaps the first story that we've had, with the possible exception of an unearthly child, that genuinely feels like a a proper season opener. This feels like it's establishing even more than Spearhead from Space did just the year before. 
Um, it's it's kind of interesting how, like you say, there's some stuff about the Autons that they're just generally not as good as they were in Spearhead, and it's like they were trying to fix something that really, really wasn't broken. Um, it's also a very similar story to Spearhead. I think it's you know it, it's it's a sequel. It's also not quite a carbon copy, but certainly pretty similar. Uh, Greg, what are your thoughts on it? I was actually surprised watching this story, how disappointed I was in it, unfortunately. I I think part of the problem for me is that this is the story that resets Doctor Who from season seven to what the rest of the Pertwee era is going to be. And I think that the rest of the Pertwee era is a step down from season seven. Um, like, you know, take take Joe, for example. Like, I, 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 I like her character. Like, she's very appealing. Obviously, I love Katie Manning. But, like, just to consciously introduce this character to, like, just, just blatantly say on screen, oh, no, we don't need another scientist. We just need someone to pass you your test tubes. Like, that, that's just spelling out, like, we're dumbing this down. And and I, I really have a hard time getting past that. And, you know, Unit, even though they're going for a more realistic, you know, appearance in terms of the costumes and so forth, it, it's really shifting from this feeling of this kind of out-on-its-own-thing paramilitary organization to just, like, another staid military group, and it feels very cozy and comfortable. You know, Yates is... I, Again, I, I, I like Yates, but it's a very comfortable character. I, I, I'm not sure. You know, I, and the best thing about the story by far is Roger Delgado. I mean, the, the master is fantastic. You know, Jimmy was saying that the, um, the, the, the chair eating someone or suffocating someone, I guess, is, is, does not look good on screen. And it doesn't. But the master immediately afterwards saying he just sat down in this chair and slipped away is a delightful line. Like there, there's really a lot to enjoy here. The other thing I, I don't like here is that it, it just doesn't look very good. They really overuse the CSO. Like there's a lot of times when they'll do like, they'll be in a studio set and they'll do like a shot in one direction but then they'll do the reverse shot and of course because there's no wall in the reverse for the cameras, they just do a big it's CSO backdrop and it's, it, it just doesn't, I understand at the time, I'm sure on a, you know, small TV of the time it looked fine, but like now with, you know, high resolution and big screen TVs and everything like the, the seams really show. So that's more my fault, I guess, for watching it in 2023. But yeah, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like it's a bad story because it's not, it's a, it's a solid, you know, action oriented Auton story that introduces the greatest recurring villain in the history of Doctor Who. It's just this one coming on the heels of of season seven could never be anything other than a disappointment for me. Yeah, I, I totally sort of uh, see where you're coming from and agree with you. I do think season seven is the the strongest of the era uh, by quite some distance, and it's this. I mean, as I said before, it's kind of like they were trying to fix something that really wasn't broken. Uh, and as a result, they have just damaged it a tiny bit. Um, it, it, it's a step down. It's a notable step down, but it's obviously an intentional step down. Um, it kind of sort of, you know, the way they introduced Joe, as as you were saying, you know, you don't need another scientist, that kind of thing. It's almost like them going, yeah, we created a character that was a bit too good last year. Um, and it, it does it does Joe a huge disservice right from the start. 
Um, I think that there were some things just misjudged, but they were entirely on a production level. In terms of writing, this is excellent. It's a really, really solid Robert Holmes script and, you know, scenes like that with the master, you know, he just slipped away, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's really, really good, strong stuff. And I think a lot of that good stuff does kind of get lost in the fact that it's a bit of a shock to go to this after watching season seven because of all the changes and the way that the production team wanted to take it. And maybe it was the right move, you know, maybe it wasn't sustainable to do stuff like season seven over and over and over and over again. That being said, um, we're about to move on to the mind of evil, which is, as we've already said, a kind of it's it's almost like a bridge between the styles of season seven and season eight. It's it's a bit of a transition point, probably more of a transition point than uh, Terror of the Autons was. This is where we kind of see, I don't know, maybe it was a story that was written in the house style of season seven that was then edited to the house style of season eight. I'm not sure, but uh, it's, it's an interesting beast, Mind of Evil, isn't it? it? It does sort of stand out as the very different story from this season. So... Jimmy, do you want to go first? Talk to us about The Mind of Evil. Yeah, this story is uh, definitely another one that I could have just as easily picked as a favourite of the season. It's uh, a really brilliant one, but um, I think for me there was also a bit too much going on, like between the missile subplot, the peace conference subplot, and the prison and the machine in the prison that actually caused the trouble. It was all just almost a bit too much. It felt sort of almost like two four-parters put in a blender and expanded to six parts. Like, I think it could have been a, two separate, really amazing stories, but instead they sort of stretched it out and tried to do too much at once, which I think was a bit of a flaw with it. But, again, despite flaws, it's thoroughly enjoyable story, really brilliant. I love the concept of the the being able to just erase the evil from a person that then the evil has to go somewhere. It's just such a cool idea. And I think the machine was one of the most interesting parts of the story when it's, you know, doing the doctor's fear and you've got the monsters and the illusionary Daleks have a really crappy voice, but it's, um, you can still really see the fear and especially the fire and his lines about a world consumed in flame that are clearly just directly referring to Inferno and, showing how much of an impact it made on him and that's some really powerful stuff and then it gets even better with the master when you've got the whole dynamic of him basically panicking when he thinks that he's actually killed the doctor and being desperate to have him survive and then sort of going straight back to his cool yeah I'm fine sort of thing as soon as he knows that the doctor is and the idea of the doctor laughing at him and ridiculing him being his fear and I think it does a brilliant job of almost giving this master his development and saying, you know, here's what he's like and this is what's going on in his head and it, it makes a brilliant way of introducing him again so soon after the previous story literally introduced him. This one is the one that fleshes him out and sort of says who he is and, yeah, I love that dynamic. And, um, again, Joe, she's instantly still <laughs> such a good companion for the Doctor, like, They've got the loveliest dynamic where they clearly care for each other so deeply and they've got the funny scenes like when they're playing checkers in the prison cell and just shushing the master to keep playing and he's like, all right, I'll let you have your fun. <laughs> it's, yeah, I love the dynamic that Joe has with the Doctor. I think, like, objectively, I prefer Liz and Sarah Jane as companions, but 
Joe is just such a wonderful character and just so instantly likable that you just can't help but thoroughly enjoy all her stories just because she's there. And so, yeah, it's, again, a brilliant story and a brilliant start. Well, not quite literally start, but a brilliant early story of the season. And, yeah, they're really doing well at this point and keep getting better, it seems. So, yeah, that's good. I think you're right when you say that there is an awful lot going on in this, but I think that it kind of genuinely does manage to sort of help it maintain that infamous six-episode runtime, which, you know, over the next few episodes of us doing this, we are going to be talking about some very, very slow six-parters that really are padded out and kind of only have one story going on. This does have sort of three stories, I guess, all happening at once that are all interlinked. But um, I, I do quite like the fact that it's it's very busy and sort of does justify its runtime. And I think that a story justifying its runtime is something we're going to discuss quite a bit, um, probably before we're done with this episode, to be perfectly honest. Um, Greg, what are your thoughts on Mind of Evil? What I find interesting is, you know, right at the end of, of Terror of the Autons, when they say that the Master is still around and the Doctor says, well, I'm rather looking forward to seeing him again. And it's like, really? Because, you know, he just murdered a bunch of people and almost blew up unit. And, you know, looking back on it, of course, we say, oh, well, of course, it's the Doctor and the Master and they're, you know, they're chummy and how they, you know, fight each other. But at the time, it had to sound a little weird. And... Now you go into the mind of evil and the master is back and, you know, this time it doesn't have the the fun, jaunty tone of Terror of the Autons. This time it's a lot darker and a lot more intense and now you have, you know, people being shown their greatest fears and screaming in terror as they die and, you know, and the, the doctor being forced to confront the, the flames of the burning earth from Inferno and I guess also Coquillion for some reason. And, you know, the master seeing the doctor laughing at him and it's just, it's, it's a much more intense story. And it's like, maybe you shouldn't be looking forward to battling with the master because this isn't fun at all. Um, but that being said, you know, this is, like I said, it, it's a hybrid between season seven and season eight. Um, it definitely has the grittier uh, nature of season seven, but it's sort of leavened by the the unit family atmosphere. Um, even though the material is darker than Terror of the Autons, the Doctor's relationship with the Master is still the very like give and take, quippy sort of thing. It's a lot of fun, you know. It, I, I always enjoy the more action oriented Pertwee stories. Like I love when they just fill up minutes of an episode with just soldiers running around shooting or helicopters flying or things exploding. Like it's something that no other era of the show ever really does, and it's just a lot of fun to watch. Um, you know, it, John Pertwee's really settled into the role at this point. Like he's really, you know, the the, the dashing heroic figure, and. I also have to say this story has possibly the greatest last line in any Doctor Who story ever. And now I'm stuck here on Earth with you, Brigadier. It is it is a great final scene. I do love that. And it's part of me wishes they kind of kept the, you know, the Doctor has the Master's dematerialization circuit, but can't use it thing going for the rest of the season. Like, you know, there's been something quite interesting in in them both being sort of trapped on Earth. But 
I guess that uh, really they needed to give the master that one up over the doctor. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a very very different story to Terry the Autons. This and it, it sort of lets us approach the doctor and the master's relationship in a different way and. Terror of the Autons, despite all the murder, they're basically sparring partners, whereas this, the Master does kind of cross another line, maybe, and, you know, is particularly cruel and even goes in out of his depth. You know, he doesn't have any control over the creature whatsoever, um, which leads to, you know, the scene with the Doctor cackling at him and that kind of thing. Um I think it's also interesting to note that this is perhaps the first unit story where things are starting to feel international. It feels like unit is an international organisation and not just sort of a few British army types having having some alien-related adventures. I think this cut sort of expands unit scope to what it's kind of originally described to be. Um I do like the unit family atmosphere and I think it does sort of thread through nicely even though we've got sort of a a fairly dark a few fairly dark stories going on you know we've got a failed or failing peace conference we've got uh, a lot of um, people being murdered in a prison riot and all that kind of thing Uh, there's definitely a mishmash of tones but it's it's a strong story and it does give everybody something to do there's a little bit of capture and escape capture and escape but everyone has something to do benson has his own story the brigadier has his own story yates has his own story you know captain yates finally say finally it's only his his second story but captain yates is actually able to be a bit of an action man in this one which is what i actually think the character was probably envisioned as at first um, but it's something that we don't actually get to see that often um, but yeah, it's it's a great story, and it, it's it's almost the look at what could have been had they not sort of rejected so much of season seven outright when planning season eight. Um, we'll move on. We'll move on to the next story, which is uh, in some ways quite similar. I mean, I suppose they're all in a way quite similar because you've got the master causing trouble. But this next one is the clause of Axos, which is. It's an interesting one. It's it's quite bizarre. It really sort of plays with the new effects that are coming in. And even colour is perhaps the first time that Doctor Who really uses the fact that it's in colour now to its advantage. Um, so what are your thoughts on it, Jimmy? For me, I'd have to say I enjoyed the story, but there's not really that much you can say about it. I mean, every other story of this season, I've got a list of dot points of stuff I want to mention and they're long lists, and Claws of Axos, I've got about five points. It's it's enjoyable, and the Axons make brilliant villains, um, but, yeah, there's little you can say about it. It's brilliant, it's enjoyable, does what it needs to do, and that's about it. I mean, the few things I've got are, like, just little comments on funny little things, like the main one is I love the master's line on taking precautions in case there's a nuclear blast. Just put sticky tape on the windows. He's just so smug and... I love that little line. That's probably my favourite bit of the story. Um, the other things I had to mention were the top secret folder was fit in this groovy 70s font, top secret. It just looked so ridiculous and so funny that I had to mention it. And Pig Bin Josh is such a weird idea to include and so irritating. This, like, They devote like half the first episode to this hobo 
as he wanders the countryside. I mean, I don't know what was going on there or why they felt they had to do that, but it was very irritating and it wore Finn very quick. Um, the other one I've got to mention is that when they describe the axons, and they're not talking about the um, blobby spaghetti looking ones at the time, but the actual golden human ones. And it's this, I've got this same dot point two stories in a row because it happens in Colony in Space about its native aliens as well. But they say that they're not even humanoid, but they're like, they literally are. Humanoid isn't just human. It's, you know, two legs, two arms, human shaped. And the axons are, the native aliens on Colony in Space are, but two stories in a row, they're like, oh, it's not even humanoid. And yeah, it just seems weird that we've just had season seven where they're going all in on the grounded and realistic and they can't even keep the definition of humanoid straight. It's a bit weird, but yeah, I, I do love the story despite that, but yeah, there's not really much more I can say about it. It's good. That's it. <laughs> uh, and uh, what are your thoughts on it, Greg? You know, Claws of Axos, it's the first Bob Baker and Dave Martin story. And I find pretty much all of their Doctor Who work to have in common that it's ridiculously ambitious, has some really wacky and out there ideas, and is almost always executed terribly. <laughs> um, I and, and a large part of that is because the things they come up with just aren't feasible on the budget that they're working with. I mean, when you compare, you know, I mean, the mind of evil, right? It's It's very, you know, grounded earth-based ideas even the even the killer machine which has an alien parasite in it is still you know a machine that's being used on prisoners here we have an alien race coming from space tempting humanity with a you know infinitely renewable form of energy but they're also shapeshifters and they can get into your mind and they're the, the actual like physical form of them are these tentacled creatures and they, they really try to make this work and what I what I I like the ambition of it in that they they try to make it as colorful and as garish as possible. Like they really try to turn up the contrasts, and you know, there's a lot of like off canter angles in the in the filming, and you know some some uh, double exposure shots and and so forth that 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 really try to convey this sense of just alien rawness, but. Even so, sometimes you just get shots of the tentacle axon like stumbling around in a corridor and it just looks ridiculous. And, you know, unfortunately, it, 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 it kind of just looks ugly now to a modern eye. I mean, I, I can't tell you what someone in 1971 who was able to watch this in color would have thought of it. But looking at it now, it's just very like, you know, that doesn't doesn't look great. And one thing I, I do love about this story, though, is the relationship between the Doctor and the Master. And specifically, I love John Pertwee at the end of this story, when he appears to be presented with the opportunity to you know, use a functioning TARDIS to escape the Earth. And he appears completely convincingly ready to betray humanity to the Axons and escape. And even once he's in the TARDIS with the Master, he starts talking about wanting to ally with the Axons and destroy the Time Lords. And, and the Master is looking at him like, you are insane. And, and, and it really kind of flips the dynamic between their characters. And of course, it's all an act. Of course, he's just trying to you know trick the Axons and 
and end up locking them in the time loop. But, you know, for that, for those brief few minutes, like you, you, because we, we've spent so much time with the doctor trying to escape at every opportunity and always failing. And it's usually played for comedic effect, but you know, he's trying to, and now here he looks like he finally has his chance. And for just a few minutes, you think, is he really going to do this? Like, does it really mean that much to him to get off of earth that he will betray his friends? And thankfully the answer is no, but uh, that's my favorite part of the story. It's just, it's, it's my least favorite of the season in spite of that. Just it, I just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't look good. It just doesn't sit particularly well with me, but, but that ending really good. And it's the third story in a row that has sort of a, an absolutely brilliant sort of closing line. Um, You know, the intergalactic yo-yo. I do kind of like how, how these stories are ending. Like they're actually, they have sort of, thought out ending scenes whereas most of season seven ended with kind of the doctor walking off or whatever obviously we had the end of the silorians which was a bit a bit different um but yeah the these seem to have a it's almost like scooby-doo kind of a all the characters start laughing which thankfully they never did but uh it's it, it, it's sort of in that style but yeah I, I quite like them um it does raise a lot of questions, you know, how how to uh, how to escape a nuclear explosion. Drive up the road a little bit, you'll be fine. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's a solid story. It it sort of fits quite nicely within the season, and it, it it's sort of it's ambitious. But Doctor Who was being really ambitious at this point because CSO was a very exciting toy that Barry Letts was all over, obviously. Um, so we'll move on now, and it's it's a story that I, I do struggle to be enthusiastic about this next one. It's one of the very, very, very few Doctor Who stories that I read before I saw, and I know there's a whole generation of people that read a lot of Doctor Who stories before they actually got to see them, uh, but Colony in Space, or Doctor Who and the Doomsday Weapon, as the book was, um was i loved that book i thought it was fantastic it was exciting it was it felt really fast paced it felt really interesting and i remember reading it and thinking how on earth did they realize this on on tv and then i saw it and unfortunately the answer was badly um it's very well directed but i think it's just one that is too ambitious and goes on for a couple of episodes longer than it probably should do um maybe i'm on my own maybe you two will love it but yeah it's it's definitely not a favorite of mine uh so jimmy what are your thoughts on colony in space i actually think this is a really good one it's not obviously one of the all-time greats or anything like that but i think it's thoroughly enjoyable and quite underrated um i think the whole idea of the fight between the colony that wants to build itself and the uh, miners that want to, you know, strip mine the planet and stuff the people. I think it's such an interesting idea that you've got these two separate factions. They're both, it's not just like most of the stories where, you know, human versus alien or whatever are on opposite sides. You've got two opposite human factions and the aliens just sort of don't really care about them that much. It's uh, a very different dynamic. And of course, Pertwee were being very political at times. You know, in later stories like the Peladon stories, they're all about, oh, these hard done by miners. And it's interesting that here in this story, the miners are the bad guys. So it's a, it feels a bit 
odd for the Pertwee era, but it really works for me. And um, I think all my little quibbles with this story are like the minor and irrelevant things. Like I think the biggest one actually would be at one point, Joe and the Doctor leave the TARDIS and they leave it with the doors wide open. And yet a few scenes later, the aliens come to take it and the doors are closed. I mean, it's just little sloppy things like that with continuity that um, uh, the things that get in the way of the story being great. Like um, the other one is there's a scene where you see the ship, the model of the ship, and it's labelled 157 and about one scene later you have the captain on it calling it ship 43. I mean, it's just little things that they were sloppy about continuity and they sort of put a damper on the story. But, yeah, otherwise it's brilliant. I love that Joe gets this sort of reaction that most companions get in their first story of, oh, wow, I'm on another planet. This is all real. Like, she was happy to work with the Doctor and fight aliens, but she had no idea that he could actually travel in time and space. And it's an interesting twist on the usual first story of a companion. It's like she's had this time to get introduced and fleshed out, and then she gets the actual introduction stuff again all this time later, and I think that works really well. Um but yeah, I I love this story. I think obviously the special effects are bad, the 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 costumes of the aliens are a bit ridiculous, but the actual concept of the story works really well. And I mean, I, I love the master gets another brilliant role with his whole thing about the credentials. Oh yeah, they're forged, but immaculate. <laughs> and just t- taking control and all that. It's yeah, it's brilliant. And of course, very dark thing in the story towards the end when the colonist spaceship goes off and blows up about two seconds later and you think, holy shit, that is dark. And I mean, yeah, the colonists actually survived and it was only Ash in the ship and no one else, but it's still a very dark and gritty moment for an era that usually it's always the good guys won, everything's fine. But yeah, no, this story goes dark and shows things don't always work out well. And again, the Doctor and Master dynamic is brilliant in this one and especially the part where the Master's like, I'll give you half the universe. Like, the Master doesn't just want to take over and control everything. He's like, he wants the Doctor there by his side. He's willing to give up half of everything he wants just for the Doctor. And the Doctor, of course, still refuses and talks about how he wants to see the universe, not to rule it. But it's a brilliant characterization thing for both of them. And, yeah, I think it's handled really well. I mean, I think if this story happened these days, like condensed to an episode or whatever, and give it the budget to realise the aliens and their planet well, I think it would go up in a lot of people's estimations. I think it's really sad how underrated this one is because, yes, it looks bad, it looks cheap, it looks silly, but the actual story that's there beneath all that is a brilliant one in my opinion. And so, yeah, I still I still like it despite all its faults. I think the biggest problem I have with it is that it's, and I've mentioned this already, it's a six-parter that just doesn't have enough material to keep it going for those those full six parts and it's you know the master doesn't even turn up until pretty much the halfway point um and it it kind of spends an entire 50 percent of its runtime not being a master story doing its own thing being this sort of debate violent debate i guess between the colonists and the miners and it, it it's all a lovely and interesting idea, but then the master turns up, and it it's, it kind of feels as though the show's going. You know what the the uh, three episodes that you've watched so far they don't really matter, but the master's here now, um, and it it just seems like an odd way to 
to kind of pad things out to that that six part runtime that it needed. Um, maybe I'm just being a bit down on it. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh, but it's 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 just not the one that sort of stands out to me as as a good story from this season. But it's surrounded by some very very good stuff. Otherwise, I guess. Uh, Greg, what do you think of Colony in Space? You know, I hadn't seen this story in a long time, and I was expecting to be just bored out of my mind by it. You know, it has this reputation of being this long, dull, uninteresting thing. And, and you know, like Jimmy was saying, I actually found a lot to like here. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the script, especially. Um, you know, Malcolm Hulk is very, you know, political in, in, in his writing. Like he always has a, a message. And, you know, this is a story about colonists being oppressed and threatened by a, an intergalactic mining corporation. Um, but what's, what's executed well, though, is that the colonists aren't universally the good guys and the, the miners aren't universally the bad guys. There are shades of gray in, in each group. Um, the doctor is largely there to guide them along. He's not, you know, taking control and and laying out exactly how things are going to be. In fact, by the end of the story, the you know once once IMC has been chased off, the colonists are are busy trying to figure out what to do next, and the doctor's kind of excluded from that. It, what what I find a little clunky about it is the whole reason the doctor is there is to prevent the master from getting the doomsday weapon. And yet we spend basically four episodes just dealing with the colonists in the mining corporation before we even get to the stuff about the doomsday weapon. And by that point, it just feels extraneous. Like the doctor and the master, you know, are having this side adventure while the main conflict is still going on. And it, it creates this dynamic that's very unusual for, for doctor who, or the, where the doctor just, really stops having a huge hand in the main plot. You know, there's a lot of stories where he doesn't get into it for a while, but to just kind of leave it about two thirds of the way through is unusual. Um, the other thing that I, I, I find interesting about this too, is that they really try to justify, you know, having the doctor leave earth. You know, we get the scene on Gallifrey of the time Lords deciding to send the doctor to stop the master and, and then we get an introductory scene and on Earth, and you know, we have the brigadier, you know, Doctor, come back at once. And then right at the end, you know, they haven't been gone for any amount of time at all. And they and they really still try to ground the beginning and the end of the story on Earth. Whereas, you know, by next season when they're going to Peladon or, or the mutants or whatever, they just kind of show up and it's like, woo, the time lords again. But but here they really try to draw it out. Um, you know, it, it is a bit too long at six parts. You know, the, the stuff with the doomsday weapon should feel like a, 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 like a, a, a second main plot instead of the secondary thing that it feels like. So it doesn't really work to keep the story interesting like it should. But there's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot of political intelligence here. And it's, it's really underrated. I agree completely with Jimmy. I like it. Ah, fair enough. It, it's I guess it is very easy to kind of forget the, should we say, political significance of the story. It is a Malcolm Holt story. Malcolm Holt stories were always very sort of political. Um, and I guess, you know, the, the big message here is corporations bad, which is 
just as relevant now, 50 years later, as it was then kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it, it's there's definitely bits to enjoy. Like it's it's by no means sort of a, a least favourite ever. Um, but it, it's just, I, I just kind of wish it was a little bit more coherent in what kind of story it wanted to tell. Like you say, Greg, uh, the Doctor just kind of, decides to go off and have a different adventure when he gets bored of the mining. He doesn't get bored of the mining stuff, but you get my point. Um, we'll move on. And uh, it's it, it's an interesting story that we're moving on to, I think. Um, I think it's fair to say there's no other story quite like The Demons. I think that even though it's it's a unit story and it has all of those sort of trappings, it, it, it does kind of have its its own unique identity. Um, it feels like a season finale. It feels like the big epic one at the end. Um, and it, it just sort of ups the stakes a little bit. Um, I love the first episode of The Demons. It's it's one of the greatest individual episodes of Doctor Who there's ever been. Uh, it kind of lets us see units, you know, when there's not an invasion going on, when there's not much happening and, you know, they're sat around watching telly and the brigadiers going out for for a dinner and all that sort of thing. Um, and, it, and it just sort of, it builds up and builds up and builds up and all of a sudden at the end of that first episode, there is an event that kind of clicks everything into place. And I really, really love how that works. Um so, uh, Jimmy, talk to us about the demons. Uh, I've got to be blunt here. I was saying earlier there's only one story in the season that, for me, wasn't a contender for the top, and it's this one. I think the demons is overrated rubbish, to be quite honest. Um, I know I'm going to be unpopular for that one, but I just, <laughs> I found it so weird that it was trying to stick between two stools, like, that whole starting thing of the Doctor using the remote control of Bessie to tease Joe and he's like, oh, Joe, you're so stupid to believe in magic. Ha, ha, ha. Isn't magic ridiculous? How could you believe in magic? And then two seconds later, he's like, wait, but the place is called Devil's End and it's the Feast of Beltane. Oh, and it's like, come on. I mean, I I have the nerve to do the story and justice. Like, either have the Doctor admit that there's this stuff that's, doesn't make sense that he's dealing with or have him be completely right about it, nothing being magical, but instead they try to have him laugh off magic like it's silly, but then completely believe in it and deal with it later. And it just comes across really stupid. And then there's this whole thing later when he talks about the demons from the planet of Demos, and I forget the exact line, but Joe says something about, oh, 30,000 light years away. And it's like, what? You've heard of the home planet of the demons and know exactly where it's located. What? When the hell did that happen? And then you've got the stupidity of the demons being responsible for every bit of culture and civilization and development on Earth. And it's just, oh, what? why would you make, like, I mean, sci-fi is usually about, you know, oh, humanity is so brilliant. You've managed to develop so much. And then it's like, nah, these aliens gave them it all. Eh. And then you've got Azal being the most ridiculously hammy performance and, they try to throw back about, oh, he destroyed Atlantis and contradicts the, you know, the whole thing of Atlantis from back in the Troughton era. And then you've got just the practical things like Mike and Joe hiding from the cultists in plain sight, like it's completely ridiculous that they weren't seen. And the end is the worst part because 
when Joe wins because she manages to show that humans, humanity is self-sacrificing or whatever, it's like for the rest of the story, the demon has been either like an actual mythological demon or like an alien. But suddenly at the end, it turns into a computer and it's like, this does not compute. What is compassion? How is this working? And it basically dies like it's blown a fuse on a robot. It's, I just hate this story. It's garbage. I'm sorry to be blunt, but I really don't understand how it's so popular. It's terrible. Well, that's quite an interesting take. And I, I kind of see where you're coming from. Yeah, it, it's, it is full of little inconsistencies and it... It, it, it's sort of it's Doctor Who trying to bring in other influences, influences that it hasn't really had so far. It's actually quite surprising that it hasn't sort of looked into the supernatural and witchcraft and that kind of thing until the end of its eighth season. Um, you'd have thought it was something that maybe it had been picked up on earlier, especially when you consider that they sort of were doing historical episodes um, in the uh, in the mid sixties. Greg, what what do you think of the demons? I really like the demons. <laughs> um, I I think <laughs> the the reason why I like it um, is because, and I didn't really ever pick up on this before, but watching it now, this is pretty much a comedy, isn't it? I mean, it, it, nothing's really played super seriously. There's a lot of just overt gags that happen. Um, the characters are all very like sarcastic and jokey with each other. It's I I, I think it's supposed to be funny. Like I, I really I, I I don't think it's supposed to be taken as a as, as a as a serious sort of thing. And I think that's probably why so many of the cast of the time cite this as their favorite story is because it just looks like it was so much fun to make and everyone just seems to be having a great time. Um, one thing that, that jumps out at me from this one is uh, Sergeant Benton. Like, this is probably the best story he ever gets. Like, he, he really gets to to function independently. We get to see him and Yates out of uniform. Um, his relationship with Miss Hawthorne is delightful. Like, it, it, it's really a, a showcase for, for, for John Levine, who's really, you know, nailed this character and really does a good job with it. Um, it's It's fun to see the the brigadier like just pushed completely off to the side and visibly angry about it um i i really like the master in this story like i think he fits so well into the into the the image of the the, the first the vicar and then the the demonic priest like it's just such a it's such a perfect fit for roger delgado's portrayal but one thing that that I didn't like about the story is that the doctor is an absolute dick in this. And especially to Joe, like anytime she says anything to him, he's belittling her. He's putting her down. There's, there's the scene where they're, where they're, you know, where the doctor is talking to the brigadier and the doctor is like really sarcastic and critical of the brigadier. And then Joe agrees with the doctor and backs him up. And then the doctor turns on her and is like, that's your superior officer. How dare you? And it's like, what is wrong with you? Like, why are you being so mean to this woman? And it just doesn't stop for the entire story. And I, I don't know why they wrote it that way, because, I mean, he's always a little patronizing to Joe, but it's never like it is here. And I, I really don't understand why. But but to me, this it's just a 
it's just a it's a fun way to end the year. It really does have the feeling of a season finale, and I love the ending. I I, I really love the final shot of them. Everyone, dan- you know, there really is magic in the world after all, and everyone dancing around the maypole. I don't know it. I, I I agree that that basically everything with the demons doesn't make any sense at all, and 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 it. I also agree that I, it doesn't make any sense that it just explodes when Joe demonstrates a willingness for self-sacrifice for someone who really doesn't deserve it based on his conduct in this episode, by the way. But man, I love that ending. It's just, it's, it's really beautiful and it just feels like it, it brings the whole season to a close in a way that most Doctor Who season finales do not. I think it's it's quite interesting how they do go down the essentially they killed the villain with love root which you know like you say joe the doctor's never been nice to joe not really um they have some nice moments in mind of evil and but in terror of the autons the doctor's just in a mood where he seems to be bullying everybody um he's really horrible to joe the brigadier Yates, Benton, Mammoth from the Ministry, and of course the Master, and uh, you know, Claws of Axos, he clears off and decides that essentially he's going to make it look like he betrays Unit, and that includes Joe. You've got Colin in space, he kind of just clears off to the ruins and lets everyone else get on with what they're doing, and sort of, you know, when Joe's first in the TARDIS, she's like genuinely scared. Like, I don't like this. I want to go home now. And the Doctor just kind of, no, it's fine. This is what the TARDIS does. It's okay. Um, And then, like you say, Greg, in this one, he's just a bit mean. He's really mean. Um, So why Joe, after spending all this time with the Doctor, decides that she wants to sacrifice herself for him is, yeah, a little bit beyond me. The Doctor is horrible in this season. He's really not nice to many, many people. Um, And like I say, I think it's a whole season thing. I don't just think it's the demons. Um, I've always sort of had Terror of the Autons pegged as the Doctor's nastiest story. But actually, you could be onto something with this one. Um, We have just got a little bit of time left to just quickly talk about um, The Master who has obviously been in every single serial of this season. You know, they introduced him in Terror of the Autons and they kept him around. I think there's only is it four episodes of the whole season he's not in. Something like that. Um, essentially, he was introduced as a regular, um, a regular villain. Um, I'm just kind of wanting to get a quick take from you guys. Do you think it works? Do you think having the Master as a regular villain throughout the entire series worked? Uh, Jimmy, do you want to go first? Yeah, for me, I'd say I'm torn. On the one hand, Roger Delgado always gives an amazing performance and the Master's such a brilliant character. And I do love his presence in all these stories and I think he does a great job with them. But on the other hand, I also feel like a bit of variety is good and having the same villain in every story is a bit of a waste and, you know, there should be other opportunities taken. But then I'll come back to, but he's so damn good. He's brilliant. I, I think. Yeah, he's one of the best actors in Doctor Who, to be honest. And I think in another universe, he might have made an amazing Doctor. But um, yeah, he does such a great job with the with the part of the Master. And I'm always happy to see him. And so 
yeah, on one hand, I've got the principle of I like a bit of variety, but on the other hand, he's he's brilliant. And, I mean, I'm never going to complain that he's there because, yeah, he brings a lot to every story and he's great. And what about you, Greg? I like that they introduce a recurring villain only because I, I know they famously said that one of the problems with having the Doctor stranded on Earth is that every episode has to be either alien invasion or mad scientist. So at least here you can kind of combine the two and have the Master be involved in every single story. Um, but I, I think one of the issues I have with, with season eight as a whole is because it doesn't have that grounded, gritty feeling of season seven the fact that there's so many repeated elements in each one of the stories of season eight and the fact that the master is always the villain or at least an ancillary villain makes it feel, makes the show feel small. Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like an expansive you know, science fiction show. It feels very parochial because the same people keep turning up constantly. And, 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 and Jimmy's absolutely right. Like Roger Delgado makes up for almost all of that just based on how, fantastic his performances. I mean, he is magnetic. Like every time he's on screen, you watch him. Like he's the only person in the cast that can like take energy and focus away from John Pertwee when they're on screen together. Like he's, he's an absolute supernova and, and that makes up for almost everything. I mean, I, he can be in every Pertwee story just because he's that good, but I mean, it's an interesting experiment for sure, but I'm 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 happy that he's not in every single one going forward from a story perspective. They definitely sort of limited his appearances after this, really. You know, obviously he's in Sea Devils, he's in uh, Time Monster, but then after that, he's in half of Frontier in Space, and it, it just uh, they they definitely sort of perhaps didn't feel as though. The character was a failure, but felt the idea of the same villain popping up every single week uh, wasn't the best of ideas. And it, it's a real shame that we sort of never got the the final big battle between the Doctor and the Master. And, you know, you hear about various sort of stories uh, that may have been the Master sacrificing himself for the Doctor or them turning out to be brothers, all this kind of thing. Um but I guess that when they came up with this character, they never envisaged that the Master would be the character that we sort of know today and appears in Doctor Who today. Um, you know, broad strokes, same basic thing. They exist partly to just cause a lot of trouble for the Doctor. But at the same time, it's I, I don't get the impression that they intended this character to sort of last 50 years but I'm glad that it has, and I'm glad that the Doctor has a really sort of good Time Lord nemesis that we can, you know, every now and again venture back to. Um, but yeah, season eight, it, it's I, I do find it an interesting beast. It 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 does have its ups and downs. It's there aren't necessarily any bad stories, but there are stories that definitely have things that sort of drag them down. Um, whether it be production decision or the length of the story going against it or whatever, but it's still a thoroughly enjoyable season. Um, and it has, as ever, been a pleasure to discuss it. So we'll leave it there, but um, we'll be back in the not-too-distant future with season nine, of course, which is, I think, another interesting one. 
Um, I think the whole Pertwee era is interesting. I think you get some of the most unique Doctor Who there's ever been in there. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll save that for next time. So meanwhile, I will say thank you and goodbye to Jimmy. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And thank you and goodbye to Greg. We will see you next time. And uh, that's that's the first episode of the next series recorded. Um, but if you're listening to it, you'll probably have heard a few already. Um, but yeah, it's good. It's good. We're back. Um, and I'm going to say we're back again when we record the eventual first episode of the series. So you're going to hear me saying we're back an awful lot and will have done before this, but never mind. Thank you very much. We will be back for more podcasting soon. Goodbye now. <laughs>